Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add his blessing as we read it and study it together. Now, one of the most famous sermons uh, ever preached in America, or at least in pre-revolution America anyway, was one titled, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You all may have heard of this sermon. Perhaps you've read it or even heard someone else preach it. Now, it's a sermon that took a single verse from the book of Deuteronomy as its passage. Uh, so it's not, it's not the same as what we're studying this morning, but it's, it's a powerful sermon. It's a sermon that speaks of God's sovereignty, of our need for salvation, uh, and the very real, very present danger of hell. It may also be appropriate to call this a fire and brimstone sermon if ever there was one. Uh, now, don't get me wrong, yes, it's a fire and brimstone sermon, but Christ is named in that preaching. The call to repent and believe is there, but the manner in which this sermon is presented, the focus of that sermon lies squarely on the wrath of our God and our utter dependence on him to be kept out of hell. In fact, his main idea, his thesis uh, in that sermon is this, and it's, if you ever look it up and you see the text of it, it's right there at the top. It says, there is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. That's a fire and brimstone sermon. Now, I have no intention of reading that sermon this morning or copying Edward's Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, but I wanted to share with you some of the things uh, that preachers think about as we prepare a sermon. And so I've, I've wondered as I've read that what... Edwards was thinking, because one of those things that we consider is what we call law-gospel balance. The law which convicts us of our sin. It, it tells us of our need for a savior, and then the gospel which reminds us of the grace of our resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Too much law and sermons can feel like they're just condemnation. They're just angry. But if we never preach about sin either, we can become complacent and, and unconcerned with our sin and unconcerned with the need to repent. So as we come to, to our passage this morning, uh, we, we're confronted with a passage, passage where Jesus is speaking to a crowd. He's speaking to Pharisees that he has already called lovers of money. So it's easy to take this context and take uh, where this passage is situated and, and we look at the condemnation of, of idolatry, of unbelief, of, uh, of unrighteous wealth, and it's easy to take this which is set in hell and preach a fire and brimstone sermon. In fact, this passage that we're studying is uh, a text that many theologians and scholars use to talk about hell and the nature of hell. Our, our own confession, our own Westminster Confession, lists this as the first uh, reference to talk about uh, the state of men after death. So it would be easy to take uh, passages like this parable and talk only about the dangers of hell. And we could pray and, and leave and we'd, we'd go out hearing nothing but hell. And, and perhaps rightfully so to some regard because where the majority of our parable takes place is from the rich man's point of view in hell. So we have to understand that hell is real. It's a real place. The wrath of God is very real. The torment of hell is very real. And here in Luke, we see that quite clearly. But so is heaven. Heaven is mentioned here. 
Heaven is very real. The love of God is very real. The comfort of God to the afflicted is also very real and very present in this text. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, the reality of hell, the reality of heaven, and how God brings us there. And so to show us all this, our passage begins by pointing out two very opposite situations. We read in verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. Now, purple was an incredibly expensive color defined at that point in time. Christ isn't just pointing out that this man was rich. He's pointing out the extreme wealth of this man. He dresses in the finest clothing. It's the Armani suit of the Middle East. He eats the best food every day. If, it, if you could have your favorite restaurant cater to your home every day, that's what this man did, or he had his own private chef or something like that. Uh, he's the Jeff Bezos of the day. He's the royal family of the day. To call him rich doesn't really do justice to the picture that Christ is painting of this man. But then in verse 20, we get another little picture of just how wealthy he is. We're told that a, a poor man is laid at his gate. Well, who would have a gate except someone who had not just a house, but an estate, a complex? Right? And we're told later that his brothers live there as well in his father's house. This is a large piece of property, and you wouldn't be surprised to see someone begging at the gate, begging at the steps outside of this estate. So now enters Lazarus into the story. He's described in verse 20 as a poor man, and if you have the King James, it probably translates it as a beggar, and so he was. He desired to be fed with, with what fell from the rich man's table. He's looking for crumbs. He's looking for scraps. He's hoping that they bring the garbage out close to him so that he can pick through it. Then the dogs come and lick his sores, and he's covered in some sort of boils or some skin affliction. And they come and lick him, and perhaps that was even a relief. That's kind of the sense that we get is that this licking, uh, we've all felt the joy of having a dog lick our face and what uh, fun that is. But we get the sense that this may be a some relief, but don't think of these as our modern dogs that are tamed and our it's little Fido who's a golden doodle or a Pomeranian or something. Uh, dogs were not quite as domesticated then as they are today. These are wild dogs looking around, looking for something to eat. And even though this may be a relief for Lazarus, they're looking him to see if he's dead. This man is on the brink of starvation. Dogs are checking him. And so you may remember, this is a common thing, you may remember the story of Jezebel where wild dogs came and ate her dead body. That's what they're checking for. They're checking to see if he could be their next meal. He is on death's doorstep. There's one more point of difference between these two men. One is named. One has a name and the other doesn't. In fact, Lazarus is the only character that's named in any of Jesus' parables. Now, this is not to be confused with the Lazarus that Jesus wept over. This is not him. This is just, just happens to be the name that was chosen. In fact, Lazarus is the, the Greek form of the, of the Hebrew Eliezer, which means God is my help. So even the fact that, that one is named and one's not paints a difference, and his name, helped by God, 
one man is and one man isn't. So already there, we see more of a difference in even what the name means. These men are on opposite ends of the social ladder, the economic ladder. But then the one thing happens that happens to all people. They die. For one brief moment, they share something in common. They've died. It happens to everyone. But we're told in verses 22 and 23, it says, The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, that's what we're told. They end up in different places. All the places, uh, all the differences that we've seen between these two men serve just to highlight how different their afterlives are as well. Now, we're going to take this a little out of order. I know that the text mentions Lazarus first, but we're going to focus first on the rich man and where he ends up. So if you are one who likes to go in order neatly, please don't worry. I'm coming back to it. So we're told that the rich man ends up in Hades. He's in a place of torment, a place where in verse 25, we're told that he's in anguish. As the rich man is in torment, he lifts up his eyes towards heaven, and he notices Abraham. He recognizes Lazarus at his side, and he asks for a drop of water. Can Lazarus reach his hand down into some water and cool him with the tip of his finger? Lazarus had more than that in life, at least up until the point where he died. He at least had crumbs. He hopefully had access to some sort of water. This shows just how bad it is for the rich man. Now, we see here the rich man speaking. He's calling out to Abraham. And we have to remember this is, a, this is a parable. There are a lot of bad ideas about what hell is. A lot of ideas that make it not seem so bad. And perhaps him speaking gives us one of those. That it's, uh, he's still able to talk and communicate. It can't be that bad. There's the idea that hell is eternal separation from God. And, and to some degree, that's, that's true. To some degree. Or there's another idea that hell is, is temporary, that there might be some, uh, some grace in it that just after a while you, you simply just cease to exist, that, that your torment goes on and you simply cease to exist. But that's not the picture we get here. That's not the picture we get from the rest of Scripture. Here, this rich man, he's fully aware of how he's being tormented. He's asking for some sort of comfort because I think he's conscious of it and he's conscious of the fact that this is going to go on for a long time. It's going to go on for eternity. So if heaven is the place where there is no more pain, no more sadness, no more sorrow, hell is the place where that is all that exists. Hell is the place where God's wrath is fully present. And so I don't think that hell is the place where we're separated from God. We are fully in the presence of God's wrath. Apart from any type of grace, apart from Christ, we fully experience the wages of our sin, which is death. And the rich man is experiencing that. We get bad ideas about, about hell from stories like Faust or, or Dante or any number of movies or television you want to watch. And there are just a few places in scripture that give us a picture of what hell is like. And this is one. It's a place of intense suffering. It's so, it's so bad that the rich man begs 
Lazarus even to have him sent back to warn his brothers. If he can't get a drink of water, will you at least go and warn my family? It says in verse 27, I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them. What a reversal this is. This man who had everything in life is begging the man who was being licked by dogs, begging for scraps. He's begging him to go and warn his brothers. That's the reality of hell. It's eternal. It's suffering, and it's full of the wrath of God. That's the reality of hell. And I know that it's heavy. And I can feel it in here, but that's why I wanted to do this first. So now we can turn and look at the reality of heaven. We can consider for a moment the joy and the comfort of heaven. And our text begins with this by telling us that they're separated. They're not the same place. They're not different ideas of the same place, but they are, in fact, very separate In our parable, Abraham in verse 26, he says, Between us and you is a great chasm. It's fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. They're not the same place. They're not uh, different versions of the same thing. They're separate. And there are only two places where souls separated from their bodies may go after death. It's either to everlasting torment or to everlasting comfort. There's no purgatory. There's no waiting place where you suffer for a bit and then you go to heaven. Uh, No, the chasm serves to remind us just how separate the two are. You cannot get from one to the other. So as we begin to look at at the reality of heaven, it's at this point, I I think we ought to address some of the terminology uh, that we have here in our text. I've used the word hell quite a bit, but as you'll notice, the, the word in our text is Hades. Uh, in fact, the word hell, as, as we know it, uh, doesn't show up in Scripture. Uh, it's, you see the word Hades, you see other words in the Old Testament like Sheol or, or Gehenna. Uh, even in Greek, you'll see the word Tartarus, perhaps. Um, but our, our confession has this to say, and I think it's right. It says, besides these two places for souls separated from the bodies, that is heaven and hell, besides these two, Scripture acknowledges none. Now, there's a great uh, deal of speculation about some of these other words. Um, There were Jewish and other ancient Near Eastern concepts of of death, but in the New Testament, we're only given two places, heaven and hell. Hell is a very biblical concept, even if the word doesn't show up. There is a place of torment, and we see that here in our passage, and that's what hell is. Now, when we see uh, the text say Abraham's side, that's a very Jewish way of saying heaven. Uh, in the same way that our culture might think of St. Peter waiting at the pearly gates, kind of checking people in against the book, right? That's uh, kind of that, that false concept there. Uh, the Jews would have this picture of Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, waiting to, to check for the, for the covenant, whether, whether they were covenant people there. And so I want to be clear with this parable. This is not a a picture of the geography of hell. It's not a picture of the geography of heaven. It's talking more about the characteristics. What are the characteristics of hell? What are the characteristics of heaven? And so this is called, here in our text, Abraham's side. Again, if you have the King James or an older translation, it might be called Abraham's bosom. And what that brings to mind is reclining at a table, 
leaning against each other as you eat. Now, many of you, I'm sure, have seen uh, Da Vinci's The Last Supper, that famous painting um, that's a big mural, and they're all seated on one side. Uh, that's not exactly how dinner would have looked. They would have been reclining on cushions and leaning against each other, where you're able to enjoy fellowship, reach out with one hand to grab a bite to eat, and you can talk, and you can just enjoy the rest, enjoy the food, content in the merriment around you. And that's the picture here, is that Lazarus is carried to a place of comfort where, where he can recline at table, where he can just enjoy the comfort that God's given him. So do you see the difference? You see the difference of the rich man who feasted sumptuously, who feasted greatly. He's begging for a single drop of water, and now Lazarus, the one who was a beggar, who was afflicted, counted as basically dead. He is the one receiving the comfort, the comfort of God with him in heaven. And this word comfort that we see in our text, it's the same root word that Christ says, it's better that I go and I will send you a helper or I will send you a comforter. So I think it's no mistake that we'll be fully in the presence of God's help, of God's comfort. I think that's the reality of heaven. And we could talk about all of the comforts of heaven, and there are other places that, that we get a picture of heaven. We can think of Christ on the cross talking to the, the repentant thief, saying they'll be in paradise together. What a beautiful concept that we'd be in paradise with God. Or there are all the splendors that are revealed to us in Revelation of what the things look like, and those will be wonderful. I, I truly hope that we get to enjoy them. But that's not the point. Again, we're looking at the characteristics. The joy and the beauty of, of heaven, they're not the focus. All of the comfortable things that might be present there, that's not the focus. They'll pale in comparison to being with God himself, of getting to recline at table with him, to enjoy his fellowship, to know him intimately, to know him without the barrier of sin between us. There's no chasm separating us from God. So it's easy to come to our passage that is set largely in hell and see only the dangers, see only the suffering. But Christ here is also speaking of the comfort for those who are afflicted. We must come to realize that we're all afflicted by our sin. It's not impossible for wealthy people to go to heaven. That's not what this text is saying. Nor is it guaranteed that every poor person will end up in heaven. That's not the teaching. The teaching then is how we get there. I think that teaching begins in the name of Lazarus. It's being helped by God. We cannot cross the barrier that sin has created on our own. We are in need of the Savior. We're in need of Christ. And it's Christ we need as he's presented in the scriptures. Because that's where our passage takes us next, isn't it? It takes us back to scripture. And it begins with the rich man begging once again in verse 27. He says, then I beg you, Father, send him, that is, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. What does Abraham do in this story? Well, he points them back to the scriptures. 
now you all know this, when it says Moses and the prophets, what it means is the writings of Moses and the prophets are what we would now call the Old Testament. He, he points them to the scriptures. Because what do the scriptures proclaim? Well, they teach us what we ought to know about God and what duty God requires of man. Anyone can read the scriptures and know what's necessary for salvation. The scriptures tell us about God, tells us about Christ. That salvation that we need, that we so desperately need to get past that barrier is Christ. So how do we learn about him? How do we continue to grow in him? Uh, how are we awakened to our need of him? How are we enlivened, quickened even to respond to Christ? It's by hearing the word again and again. It's by the Spirit working in our lives to call us to Christ. And this is how God does it so often. He even says to Abraham uh, in Galatians, he says that God preached the gospel to Abraham. He uses the word and his spirit to draw us to himself. Sometimes we think there's got to be more, don't we? There's got to be something else to it. How many of us have thought that if I could just see Christ, if I could just have a conversation with him face to face, if I could just see him do a miracle or I could see some miracle, I would follow him so much better. It would be so much easier to follow him if I could just see it. That's nothing new. Many of us have thought that. Many of us have uh, had similar thoughts. But it's the same for all of time. It was the same in Jesus' day. It's the same for us. It's the same here in our text. The rich man begs for just one more chance. Just one more instance. Maybe something supernatural gets sent to my family and they'll believe. But Abraham says no. He says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, brothers and sisters, please be convinced. Be convinced that the word of God, it's, it's essential for our salvation. It's essential for our sanctification. We know that Christ himself was raised from the dead. He died as that perfect sacrifice for our sins. And on the third day, he rose again. But we haven't seen it. None of us alive today saw that. So we read of it in the gospel accounts. We read the prophecies of that resurrection in the Old Testament. We read all these things Scripture tells us. Scripture teaches us what is necessary for salvation. So the question then, how do we avoid this place of torment? How do we get to heaven? We'll turn to what the Scriptures teach. They teach what we're to know about God. They teach us about Christ. We also learn what's required of us. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I realized at the beginning my, my outline was the reality of hell, the reality of, of heaven and how we get there. And as I was studying, as I was preparing, I, there were so many things that we, that we could have said about heaven, so many things we could have said about hell and, and how salvation works. Uh, but by way of closing, I want to go over just some of these things point by point quickly and explicitly just right now so it's clear because I had to get it clear in my head after this, this study. So first, there are only two places that our soul can end up when they're separated from our bodies, either heaven or hell. Second, hell is a real place. It's a place for the torment of those who do not belong to Christ. Third, heaven 
is a real place. It's a place for those souls who belong to God, those who during this life heard the word, listened to the spirit, and repented of their sins. Those souls who name the name of Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they are the ones who will be in heaven. Now fourth, how do souls end up in hell? They never repent. They never come to know the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Fifth, how do souls end up in heaven? As Ephesians tells us, it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourself, it's the gift of God. So repent and believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now lastly, how should we respond? Don't neglect the reading of the word. For in the scriptures, that's, it's the word of God. Just as the apostles replied to Jesus, Lord, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Every person can read the word of God and understand what is necessary for salvation. And if you do already belong to God, don't stop reading the word. Be built up, strengthened by it. Brothers and sisters, know this day that the Lord is God. Repent of your sins and come to know the saving grace of Jesus as it's offered in the scriptures. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the warning that's given us in scripture, the warning of how bad, how evil, how tormenting hell is. We thank you for the promise that those who belong to you get to spend eternity in your presence, in the comfort of you and your house. And thank you for providing a way that we can be drawn to you. Thank you for the word. Thank you for his spirit working in our lives. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.